Hey, this is Pastor Keith with Epic Life Church. And if you're tuning into this podcast, I hope it's something that will encourage you. And maybe you can listen to it a couple times and as you're reading the scripture as well and come out with something new and maybe something to think about all day or talk with a friend and maybe use in a house church community or maybe on, on a, a chat across the, uh, the internet in this time that we're separated. Enjoy. Father, it's so good to be in your presence and we just depend so much on the knowledge of what you did on the cross for us, shedding your blood, giving us eternal life so that we can walk in hope, we can walk uh, with a, a confident hope. We don't have to be anxious and stressed about this world because we know you have us. And I thank you for your church. I pray you would draw us together, Lord Jesus. I pray especially this morning that you would be with Mary Esther and Ricardo down in Peru as they have finally uh, gotten to see each other after months and months of being separated. I pray that you would sustain them uh, as they share you and, and are in their community there. And I pray for the valleys and Tibet that we've been praying for. I pray that your word would go there and be in that even though there are no... Um, there are no people working in that area right now for you. I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would open up hearts and doors and that the Tibetans themselves would give their lives to you and then start reaching out into their neighborhood. And those valleys, Lord, would change, even change the entire country. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would sustain and be with the uh, efforts around this city and in this neighborhood and the, the schools with Fellowship of Christian Athletes and and the universities with Campus Crusade, and that you would give opportunity and resources and people and just boldness to speak about who you are. And I thank you so much for what you're doing amongst us in North Seattle and here at Epic Life Church. We worship you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So good to be with you this morning and uh, to share with you this space if you don't know, it's Justin's birthday. So happy birthday, Justin. Yeah, that's, there we go. That's all you get. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so good to be here. And um, this, this um, bizarre, weird 2020 is about to get weirder, I'm sure, as we enter into about two weeks from now here, a, uh, a, a election. And uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm sure that it's going to be a bit chaotic, especially in the Northwest. So whatever happens, our hope is in Christ, and uh, we, we depend on him for everything we are about. So let me grab this table. Off camera, thank you. All right. This morning, um, as we've been going through the series on... Um, on the church and politics this morning i'm going to dive into that a little more and i want to encourage you if you have questions throughout this series and you want to send it to us so that next week we're going to do a question and answer time uh, here on stage and just answer some of your questions if you have questions i need you to text it can we get a text line up it's the the church text line which is 206 552 85 
9586. It's going to be up there on the screen, I'm sure, at some point. So <laughs> I don't know the church text number, right? Uh, so if you could text that to us or email uh, Discover at Epic Life Church some questions for us so we can start answering them. If no questions come in, uh, we're going to answer our own questions, uh, which I have a lot of questions myself, so I'll, I'll be answering a lot of those questions. Can we, anybody up there who can get a text line up for us? That'd be awesome. Uh, the church and politics. A church with different viewpoints, we should be able to speak and have a diversity of thoughts inside of our community here in Epic Life and throughout North Seattle and really the church as a whole uh, throughout. There's the text line. Thank you for that, you guys. Uh, this morning, I'm going to keep going on this and, and um, hoping that we can kind of more and more understand that as the church, we should be able to have discussion and conversations about politics. Uh, because that's the, politics isn't what scripts us and, and forms us as humans. Christ is what, the law of Christ is what forms us as humans. What should inform our viewpoint, our view of life, our consciousness? It's the law of Christ. The law of Christ. And Galatians 6, 2 talks about that. We're going to get to that. Uh, kingdoms, of course, will rise and fall and always have, yet the church will always remain since Jesus um, pass on the baton of raising up his church to the disciples, the church will always reign, um, remain, for he has built his church, and nothing can stand against it, absolutely nothing. In fact, he wants his church to stand even more than we do, and, and, and missionaries, and church planters, and Christians, and church, and the gathering of the saints, uh, we want the church to stand, but God wants us to stand even more. Countries with no freedom to vote have the expansion of the church in greater numbers and, and in greater ways than uh, the free country ever has. It's pretty amazing and startling, to tell you the truth. So let's turn to Galatians 6.2. And uh, I'm going to be in Galatians, actually, 1 through 3, and then a couple of different places throughout this message. So Galatians 6.2. I want you to know how much I have agonized. That's not Galatians 6.2. That's Colossians. Sorry, we'll get there, too. Galatians 6.2. There we go. Six, one through three. So, dear brothers and sisters, if any believer is overcome by sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto a right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptations yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. There it is, the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You're not really that important. I love that with Paul. I'm sure he had a tongue in cheek, but at the same time, he was thinking about a couple of people. He's like, come on, you're not really that important. Uh, if you, you think you can't help someone else and you can't share the law of Christ, share someone else's burdens, um, you're really not that important. Please don't think higher of yourself. Um, it's something that we, we do as humans. We pass on judgments and biases to other people all the time, don't we? We think to ourselves that other people are a certain way. Um, it's really a fundamental attribute error is what it's called. Um, cognitive bias, right? We have this, this others do bad things because they are bad people. That's how we kind of think. It's a, a fundamental attribute error. Others do bad things because they are bad people. So a cognitive bias, anybody know what a cognitive bias is? Or, or a self-centered bias? This is a really important 
um, for right now especially. <laughs> a cognitive bias is, or a self-serving bias is, is attributing behavior of other people. As I look at other people, attributing your behavior, the behavior that you ex, um, exhibit uh, to you, a character flaw. And when I'm looking at somebody else, my cognitive bias of you is like, um, you have a character flaw. You're acting this way, so you have a character flaw. But for myself, I would, act, I would um, attributing behavior of myself to circumstances and the environment. So let me give you an example. Uh, let's say I've asked one of you to, uh, to finish a project for me. And I said, hey, here's a project, get it finished. And it comes back late. And my cognitive bias towards you is going to be, oh, it came back late because you're lazy. You play too many video games, uh, you're disorganized, you have character flaws, you're irresponsible, irresponsible, right? That's my cognitive bias towards you. But if I turn in something late or I give you something late, I'm not going to stand in the mirror and tell myself that I'm lazy. I'm going to have reasons for my late paper, my late project, right? And those reasons are going to be a uh, computer failed, I had to help somebody with some, but something, and, and in fact, I am so generous with my time and help that I will turn things in late because I'm such a great and honorable and respectful person. That's a cognitive bias, right? Or a self-centered cognitive bias. We look at others and judge their behavior depending on their and, and say it's a character flaw. We look at ourselves, judge our behavior, and it's all about environment. Anybody have that problem? Anybody? No? Okay. Just me. Um, I think we do it all the time, actually. Fundamental attribution error um, assumes what kind of person he is by looking at his immediate actions other than social and environmental factors that we would look at with ourselves. So of course, sometimes some people are lazy, but that's up to them. That's, that's their thing that they have to deal with as individuals re responsible personally. But we are so capable. And so when it comes to politics, we do this all the time, don't we? We think about those stinking, racist, heartless Republicans, right? Or those commies, those Democrat commies, and they are, they are um, ruthless, they're corrupt. Every single one of those Democrats are corrupt, and every single one of those, those Republicans are racist. And I know them all, they're all racist, I know, I know all of them, and their actions show a character flaw, and that character flaw is corruption all the way around. And so we do this back and forth. We look at our political system, and then the independents we have a kind of a hard time with, and we have to kind of pick how to how to attribute uh, character flaws to them. Galatians 6.2 brings some of this to light for the Christians and helping us listen, learn, and love. If you remember last week, we talked about um, carrying each other's burdens requires us to sit in a place where other people are standing, let's say, where other people are confident about things. And when we're carrying each other's burdens, we're like authentically carrying another brother or sister's burdens, we listen, we learn, and we love differently. When we choose to carry somebody else's burdens, we stop seeing that, that, um, those things that divide us. We stop seeing those character flaws that we think they have, and we start to live in what unites us, what brings us together. The enemy is about separating us and dividing us. God is about bringing us together. So Galatians 6, 2 
Share each other's burdens, and in this way, you're obeying the law of Christ. In fact, we could sit with that verse alone and make it a verse for our lives. Share one another's burdens. In fact, as you, in the church, we should share the burden of those people that we think we are farthest from understanding or being like. Because when we share somebody else's burdens, we sit with them, and we understand why they're standing, why they're in action, why they're doing what they're doing. And that helps us along um, a road of, of uh, unity. The church should be a place that we can be unified and not divided in politics. As Christians, we should be Christ followers first and a distant, distant second an affinity to a political party. Sadly, we have flipped that around so that our filter for our Christianity goes through a political party, and then we see our Christianity completely different. And our party af um, affiliation becomes primary and center and first, as it is in so many ways right now. We must not confuse the kingdom of God with the kingdom of a political party. And for me, this is very hard. Because when you go through history, right, we are the really the first countries, the Western cultures are, are the first countries that have been allowed to vote on things, to been allowed to enter into the political conversation. Really, and you look at the history of the world, the last 200 years, perhaps, just the last 200 years, are the first time in history that we've been humans, um, the commoner has been able to vote on things. So we kind of get things mixed together and bundled up a little bit. <clears throat> we must not confuse the kingdom of God with the kingdom of a party or politics. When we do, we're robbing the world of the law of Christ. We get mixed up in these things, and we rob the world of the law of Christ, of loving others, loving God and loving others, sitting with someone else and carrying one another's burdens. We must change as the church so that the world can change. Um, Andy Stanley says this, Jesus didn't come to be a footnote in, the, in a political party. That's so true. And so many times we attribute him to one little footnote that, that Jesus is this little footnote to this political platform that we have of cognitive biases towards other people. And Jesus comes in with this little footnote on the side. Jesus did more than that, so much more than that. He came to change the world, to transform it, to be something new. This is huge. Christians throughout history lost their lives so that the church could be united. They refuse to show uncon unconditional loyalty to leaders or emperors, no matter how good those leaders or emperors or presidents or dictators were. Christians have lost their lives throughout the centuries so that the church can be unified. Not so the church can pick a political platform or a political side. The church was, a th was threatening culture in the beginning. This is going to be really interesting as um, I talk about this. Because I don't think we really understand what the church went through in the first century. We don't understand the gravity. The church was threatening culture in the first century, threatening Roman culture, not because of voting or taking sides. In fact, that's what the Jewish religious leaders were doing. They were voting and taking sides, voting and taking sides in the Roman Empire to kind of prop up their religious activity and their religion as a Jewish nation. The Jewish leaders were, were uh, being paid and getting into the pockets of the Roman leaders, and it, all it did was lead to more laws and more legalism and more um, vitriol towards the church, actually. Throughout, uh, the church was threatening culture through a new kind of unity, never before seen. 
never before seen. Galatians 6 2, they were sitting with each other to understand each other. They're carrying one another's burdens. This church was upsetting the world. Acts 2.42, we see it immediately in what the church was doing. They were gathering together, sharing each other's burdens, sharing food, sharing property, sharing their wealth, and and not just giving stuff away, but I've got to imagine as they were doing that in Acts 2.42 of sharing things, they were doing more than that. They were helping each other's businesses. They were helping each other's livelihood. They were helping each other's children. There was so much that they were doing. It was upending The culture at the time, the church was doing something brand new. A new kingdom was coming. And that new kingdom was inviting everyone in. So what was upsetting the culture? Was it because they were attacking the Roman leaders and the government? Not at all. In fact, Paul never, the only time he points to engaging with the the Roman leaders was when he was a prisoner and in their courts and telling them about Christ. Not about politics, not about rules or regulation. So the kingdom was disruptive. This new kingdom invited everyone in. It was destroying classism. It was destroying separations and racism and prejudices and parties and platforms. It was disrupting the whole government system by sharing the burdens of one another. The kingdom was disruptive, taking social social norms and turning the tables on those social norms. There were several things that were self-evident to the Roman world at the time. One, was, one, one thing that was self-evident was, was some people were born to rule and some people were born to be ruled. And slavery was just a thing. It was self-evident. In fact, it was written about, this is self-evident that some people are born to be slaves and some people are born just to rule. That's just the way it is. Nobody questioned it. Nobody questioned the value of a slave was less than the value of a master. Nobody questioned that. Other things that were being disrupted that were self-evident. Get this. It was self-evident that if you had a child and you couldn't care for that child or didn't want that child because that child was a girl or because uh, you you had too many kids, it was self-evident that you could take that child and put him out on the edge of the woods or up on the wall and expose. It was called exposure. You could expose that child to the, to the elements and that child would die and you would not be responsible for that child's death. It was self-evident that that was okay, that the fates would decide if that child died or not. And of course, out on the edge of the wilderness, that's exactly what that child would do. But that was a self-evident truth in the empire at the time that life wasn't that valuable. It was also a self-evident thing that there was classes different levels of people. Uh, a self-evident thing was gender roles in a, in a world where there was so much slavery and actually anybody could be a slave. If I defaulted on my loan, the bank could come, the, the whoever I defaulted on loan could come and take the money and my son into slavery. If I defaulted on paying something back, a, a land or something, the bank, the, the landowner could come and take my land and my daughter. And everybody, everybody in the system of the Roman world could be a slave if you defaulted on a loan or you were the wrong person in the wrong time. And so the kingdom was disruptive. It was taking social norms and turning them upside down. And when you're talking about a, a world where anybody could be a slave, it put, it put the gender roles at a whole different place where women had no rights and they had no space 
no place in society except for perhaps a couple if they're born into a very wealthy or, or, or high class, they might have a little bit more standing. But typically, mostly, um, the women of the world at the time had no standing in, in society. So Galatians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 28. Paul starts to describe this new church. Well, verse 26, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ. Galatians 3, 26, you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He's talking about this all. This church is disrupting things. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Now, so get this. We read this passage, verse 28, and we read it like, well, duh. That, that makes sense. But when Paul was writing this, it didn't make sense because it was self-evident that there were separations and there was divisions in society. And so Paul's writing this, and, and people are hearing this for the very first time, and they're going, wait, what's going on here? There is no longer Jew or Gentile. Oh, pause. Wait a second. Do you mean Jews and Gentiles were the, were the same? Were, were equal? Were on the same playing field? You know the Jews have been have been um, against us Gentiles for, for years and years and years, hundreds of years. Gentiles are looking at the Jews as like, I look what they do. They mutilate their body. They eat certain things. They do certain celebrations. I don't want anything to do with them. I don't like them. I don't want, won't even be around them. The Jews wouldn't even be around the Gentiles because they were unclean. And Paul was saying there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There's a new unity in the church. And then he says there's no longer slave and there's no longer free. And the slaves and the free men who are in the church together were hearing this. And, and the culture heard this for the very first time. And the, the masters would say, uh, I'm supposed to treat my slave on the same playing field as I, as I feel like I'm worth? They're my slave. How could that happen? And slaves were like, you're raising me up? You're bringing him down? We're on the same playing field? This was a disruptive message to the church, to the culture at the time. There is no longer male or female. There's a, and what he wasn't saying, that there's no longer um, sexes of male and female, but he was saying they're equal now. They're on the same playing field. The, the ladies were being raised up to a, a, a same level as the men. There was a unity that was coming together that was incredible, incredibly beautiful. Male or female, the same dignity, the same place of standing, slave and free, the same place of standing, same place of dignity before God. In fact, 1 Peter says that women and men are equal heirs, joint heirs before God. The, the Greek word is really, really beautiful. Sunkleronomos. Sunkleronomos. It's this huge, long word. That means you're equal heirs. And Peter, as he's talking about families, he's talking about husbands and wives, he reminds the husbands that we are to treat our wives like they're equal heirs, like they're on the same platform. There's something new going on here. I'm sure all the husbands were like, oh, wow. Don't tell the women this, right? Of course, they, didn't, they couldn't read at the time, perhaps, and so somebody had to tell them. And luckily, it was Peter and Paul, both who were talking about, about uh, family, were also talking about the equal heirship of, 
women, especially in a family. All one in Jesus Christ, a unity that was unbelievable and disrupting society, allowing the cognitive biases to be pushed aside more and more and more to come under a unity in the church. Jesus has introduced a new kingdom, one that wrecks the kingdom of earth. It's foolish for us as the church to, do, to be divided over earthly kingdoms. It's absolutely foolish. I'm not saying that we can't have different opinions, right? And different thoughts and, and passionate different opinions and different thoughts. That is really good, but it can't divide us. It can't make us into a, a, separate, a separate people. We're the church. We're the congregation, the, the, the gathering of the church, of the people of God. So um, there's a guy named Pliny the Younger. You guys ever heard of Pliny the Younger? He was a, a leader uh, in the Roman Empire, and he happened to write a few things. And um, about, about 40 years after Paul died, after Peter died, the, the, like the, the top guys of the church, right? These, these guys were the, the men who wrote, who taught, who traveled around and led the church. And they died. And 40 years later, there was um, the uh, empire was still going. And come to find out, the church was still going. That it wasn't just based on these two apostles and perhaps John and others. <clears throat> And so along comes Pliny the Younger. And Pliny the Younger uh, was a, uh, a, a leader in a part of the Roman Empire at the time. And, and Nero uh, is preaching that the, the gods are, are mad. Um, basically, crops were failing. The empire, the edge of the Roman Empire was shrinking. And he needed somebody to blame, blame this on. So he ended up blaming it on the Christians. And he sent out edicts that said, round the Christians up. They're horrible people. They're doing horrible things. And, and even more, they're not sacrificing to the God. And because they're not sacrificing to the gods and sacrificing to Caesar himself, uh, our kingdom is shrinking. And we're looking at a total implosion of the Roman Empire. So Pliny the Younger came, came along and he, he heard this edict and he started rounding up the Christians. And he actually wanted to know why the Christians were so evil and so horrible that they were causing all this pain in the Roman Empire. And so he rounded these Christians up and he tortured them. He got them to talk about the evil and the hor horrific things they were doing. And so he actually wrote a letter in 110 AD <clears throat> back to Rome. And, and that letter says this. And is actually, we, we have this. From 110 AD, 40 years after Peter and Paul were put to death. So he says, in the case of those who are denouncing me as Christians, I have followed the, the following procedure. So I interrogated them as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second time and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered execution. For I had no doubt, whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. There were others, <clears throat> there were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. So soon the accusation spread because of these proceedings as usual happening and several incidents occurred. An anonymous d document was published. Those who denied that they had been Christians and they invoked the gods in word dictated to me, I, I let them go. 
Others named by the informant declared that they were Christians, but then they denied it sometimes, asserting they had been, or they had been at some point, and then they ceased to. And so he goes on and he gathers up more Christians. Some of them were denying the faith and others were not denying the faith and he was putting them to death. These that were denying the faith came back to worship the image of Caesar and the statues of the God and they cursed Christ. They asserted that they had been hoodwinked into Christianity. But others never turned. They refused to turn. To turn. So they asserted... Here's, here's what the Christians did. This is the evil that they were causing on the Roman Empire. Um, this is the sum and substance of their fault and error. They had been accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsive hymns to Christ as a God. That was it. That's what, that's what he found out. They would meet on a Sunday morning before dawn and sing together songs and hymns and spiritual songs to this Christ guy as if he was a god. I don't know if you can picture this. Sunday was a work day. And so they would gather at five maybe before the sun came up. How many of us would do that and then go off to work, right? We have Sunday to actually meet on now. But that was their error their disgrace to the kingdom. And another part of what they would do, they would bind themselves by oath not to do, surely this is it, they're binding themselves by oath to disrupt the Roman Empire, to, to uh, bring down the government. They would bind themselves by oath not to commit crime, not to commit fraud or theft or adultery, and not to falsify their trust nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon. So they were committing themselves to be sharing one another's burdens. That was their crime in the Roman Empire. That's, that's pretty incredible. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again just to eat food together. Ordinary and innocent food. Even this they affirmed they had ceased to do after my edict, by which, in accordance with your instructions, I had forbidden political associations. Accordingly, I judged them all and killed the ones I, must, I should have. I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition to this Jesus fellow. This is the disruptive church. And the Romans at the time, I'm assuming, would look at that and go, that is weak. That is pathetic. Who wants to, who, who, why would we even care about that, that sect, that cult on the edge of society who are, who are welcoming women into, into their fellowship? What does that even mean? That is shallow. But the problem was that it, it was disrupting Rome's rules. In fact, in Rome, there was civil law, but in the religious law, there was no morality, no honor, nothing. It's just the religious law wanted their one of their sacrifices and their money, and that was it. Yet here the Christian, Christians were saying there is a moral law that we're going to follow, and it's going to be different than everything else. Christians started to feel accountable to God, how they treated others and the law of Christ. In fact, so accountable that they would go out to the edge of the field where people had left their children and pick them up and take them into their own house, adopting them to themselves, and taking care of them. They would look for and search out for children that were being abandoned 
But that was self-evident. That's what we're supposed to do. And all of a sudden, there, a different law, the law of Christ, came to be. They went out and started taking care of slaves and started taking care of the disease. And those were ill who, who people thought they could catch that, like leprosy. And they started caring for people. They felt like they were accountable to God, how they were acting out their, the law of Christ. This seems silly, weak, worshiping a rabbi that had been crucified. I mean, he wasn't even a legendary God. It was a simple man. But it became appealing because the spirit of God was amongst them and inside of them. They had dignity to slave. They, they gave dignity to women. They gave dignity to classes, different classes, lower classes. They brought the upper class and the lower classes together. They started to value life and they started to value others. They started to value stuff like morality and honesty and keeping trust with others. They valued honor. They valued keeping their word. Jordan Peterson actually writes this about early Christianity. He says, Christianity achieved the well-nigh impossibility. The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul, placing slave and master on common, the common and nobleman alike on the same metaphysical footing, rendering them equal before God and the law. The implicit transcendent worth, worth of each and every soul established itself against impossible odds. The impossible odds of a church just caring for one another, just being united, was disrupted to the Roman Empire. It started to change things. This became contagious. A small sect with pathetic rules, the pathetic rule of loving other people became contagious and it began to change the world. This church, this ecclesia, this unified gathering of Christian, Christ followers, changed the entire earth. Men and women, if we are divided over, political, over the political world, we run the risk of being divided over very important issues being divided over the law of Christ. We believe a cognitive bias about others not bringing ideas together for the greater good. You're blinded when you can't understand why other Christians believe a certain political view, and the enemy wants you to be blinded. The enemy wants us to put a cognitive bias on other people and calling them names, um, labeling pejoratives towards people who have other ideas and thoughts and political bents. The enemy wants us to be blinded with that. You're blinded when you can't understand why they have a political view. The enemy offers only half-truths to divide us. We must bring the two extremes together in the ecclesia, the church, and we must talk. We must, in fact, this should be the safest place to talk about any politics because politics are secondary to the law of Christ. The church must be the place where conversation happens. And unity is the force that that happens with. Um, I think it's in Luke 16, Luke 16, 16 perhaps, where, where Jesus is talking about the new kingdom of God and that it's forcing, people are forcing themselves into it, forcing this new thing, this new identity, forcing it. This identity of unity changes the world we have been identified for purpose as epic life church and the church has been identified for a new purpose perhaps in this season of division we've been identified for unity 
Galatians 6, 2. Carry each other's burdens. Can you think of a time, can you think of a personal time when you actually are carrying another person's burden? Well, you can think about that physically, right? Somebody's got a box, you see that a lot, and it's super, super heavy, and you go and help them carry that and walk with them. That is a form of that. But even more, there's a deeper burden that we carry. Right now, there's probably a, a burden of anxiety, a burden of not understanding, a burden of labeling others things that we can come along and understand, why are you so adamant and passionate about this? Let me understand. Let me sit with you. Let me carry your burden. Because when we understand each other, when we sit with each other, we understand why they're standing and are passionate about something else. There is a unique opportunity before the church right now, a huge, unique opportunity. And that is unity. Where in a world that's divided, for us to be unified is something incredibly, incredibly beautiful. But the enemy wants to tear us apart, doesn't he? So how does he tear us apart? He gets us to believe certain things, and then we, we separate ourselves from the, the community of believers because of things that we think we believe are truth, right? Instead of walking alongside somebody and say, why did you say that? Why did you do that? What's happening in your own life? What's, what's going on? One, thing, one reason I love marriage counseling is, uh, I don't know, I love it, I hate it. I might hate it more than I love it. But just because it's so hard. But one thing I love about it is understanding why people act the way they do. And so often we see somebody, especially in marriage, we see things, you're, you're acting this way, but in, in all, all aspects of life. And what happens in marriage is you come together in unity, then you start acting ways, and then you start to decide that their character, there's a character flaw there. And I'm, I don't love them as much because there's a character flaw. When actually... We need to sit in a, and understand the burden, what's happening, what's bringing up that action, what's bringing up those, those conversations and, and all that stuff. And once we understand that, we can then come alongside and help and walk with that person, right? And it's so, it's so beautiful to, to discover that. I've been discovering that more and more with my father and my mother. We had a great conversation this past week just about the burdens they carried as young married couple grow and growing together in Idaho. But understanding it takes time. It takes us carrying one another's burdens. That is not happening in the world. With the division that's happening right now, it's a scary and chaotic space. And the next two weeks are going to be crazy. Next three weeks. It's going to get crazier and crazier, right? It just will. And I think in, in no, no time in America's history has it been this chaotic and anxiety forming? We have a great opportunity in the church to bring unity and bring calm, and bring hope, and have conversations with people and ask good questions and, and then hear what they're saying, allowing the church to come together. I think the church has an opportunity to upset the world right now because we're coming together in unity. And it is starting here in North Seattle. The North Seattle churches are coming together and talking, having conversation and carrying one another's burdens. The fact is, if we're known for our political party leanings, but not as a Jesus follower, something is off. Something's off. 
So in no way am I saying don't talk about politics ever. What I'm actually saying is talk about politics. But talk about Jesus. Post things, encourage people, talk about things, but talk about Jesus. Because that's really where the change is going to happen. No political party is going to change anything at all. Next week, we're going to answer some questions, all right? And I, I just pray that these are real questions and people are asking authentic questions because if they don't, I'm just going to ask authentic questions myself. And there's some really hard questions that we, we need to solve because some of us believe that this party or this party are the only ones who, are, who carry a Christ-centered platform. It's just not true. The enemy wants us to be divided. We have the opportunity to come together in unity. Father God, I thank you for allowing us the space to talk about this. And Lord, I, I, I hear the pushback. I hear it. I hear the pushback of, of we should be helping people decide how to vote. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help people decide how to do that. That it would be your spirit, that we would rely on your spirit and we would look at the law of Christ and we would understand everything through the lens of the law of Christ. We would understand that that for the, the culture to be upended, it requires the church to be united. And I pray that we would do something radical like the first, the first church did. Something radical. Carrying one another burdens. Simple, it seems. Maybe it seems too simple, and that's why we don't do it. It seems like we should be doing more. But Lord, I pray that we would do the simple but really not so simple thing of praying and fasting and coming before you and having great conversations with other people in a way that we're carrying one another's burdens. Thank you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that the change in North Seattle right here, if I'm praying for one spot, one location that you've sent us to 105th and Aurora, I pray that the, the, the story of, of Nora the story of North Aurora would be told through the lens of the church being unified and loving and caring for the neighborhood that we're in. That we would carry one another's burdens and bring society back together in some way. That you would lead that and we would be part of that. And I thank you that we get to do that, Lord. And so in doing that, I pray that you would pr protect us from the enemy inside of that. Because we know when we're, we're united before you, it's the place where the enemy is the most scared. Unity. Lord Jesus, may we be united. May we not run from the fear of, of conversation, Lord. I praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen.